G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. I had an absolute ball sitting down with our next guest down at the University of Adelaide. And if there's someone who struggles to escape his work on weekends away in the countryside, well, I reckon Chris Preston would be a pretty good nomination for it. Professor Chris Preston is a professor of weed management at the University of Adelaide. His work is focused on understanding and managing herbicide-resistant weeds in Australian grain farms. His work is vitally important to improving the productivity of Australian farms, while ensuring that farmers are able to get access and at best utilise the available tools to manage weeds on their property. His current projects include integrated weed management in southern farming systems to combat herbicide resistance, improved herbicide efficacy and longevity in southern no-till farming systems, and he's also the chair of the Australian Glyphosate Sustainability Working Group. I absolutely love this chat with Chris. We cover a lot of ground and I'm so excited for you to listen into this one. Enjoy the chat. Chris Preston, it's great to have you here for a chat. How are you going? Thank you for having me along. Mate, can you tell us a little bit about the Waite campus here? Because this is my first time over here uh, at the University of Adelaide. It's a pretty impressive place. Yeah, so the Waite campus was left to the University of Adelaide by Peter Waite, who was uh, an early agriculturalist um, in South Australia and made a lot of money. And uh, it was left on the base that was used for agricultural research and teaching. So... It's a great place to work. It's uh, and you, it's been home for you for for a little while now. How long have you been teaching here for? I've been in the University of Adelaide for a little over thirty years now, and always in in the same department and area, or, or what areas have you been in? Oh, well, I've done all of my research since I came to Adelaide in in weed management. Um, what I've done has changed uh, quite significantly over the years, but there's some aspects that are still exactly the same. Been a pretty interesting evolution, I think, of particularly grain farming down here in the southern areas over that period. Uh, look, there's been um, quite a lot of changes um, happening in those 30 years, and I think probably one of the, the really big ones has been the introduction of uh, no-till farming, and I think that's revolutionised both the way farmers farm and the way that we manage some of the problems that farmers have, and it's completely changed the, the sort of work that I've done. And so how, how did you land in this area, this interest in agriculture? Where did it come from? Uh, well, I was working in the United States, um, actually working on biofuels back in the late 1980s. And I'd talk, go and talk to people about what I was doing and their, their eyes would glaze over and they'd say, well, why is anybody bothering to do that? And it did get me actually thinking about, you know, what I was doing and why I was doing what I was doing. And I started thinking about, well, actually, what I really need to do is to try and do something that's going to be uh, more useful, more practical and more useful. So that's what I was looking for when I was thinking about making a a change in position because I only had a temporary position in the United States. Uh, And weed management position opened up at Adelaide that I got. um, And so it was weed management that I worked on. But I've got a a, a background in um, plant biochemistry. And I started working on why weeds become resistant to herbicides. 
And so that was where I could actually use my previous skills. You'd be a very popular man at a dinner party, I think, if particularly in rural areas, if you mentioned who you are and where you're from. Oh, look, it's, it's actually a, a really interesting uh, a bit of a story about my background because, of course, I'm not from the farm. Though if you go and talk to a lot of farmers, uh, they would uh, perhaps think that that... No, no, I must have some connection to agriculture. But, in fact, what I've, um, what I've done is I've spent my time listening to farmers and farm advisors and particularly trying to understand what their problems are. And where I come up with a lot of my research ideas is actually from the problems that farmers and farm advisors are having. And so it's been that, that listening process and really making sure that I, I understand why farmers are doing what they're doing. Because, of course, if you want to make change, you need to know why people are doing what they're doing currently so that you can work out what it is that might motivate them to change. So tell me, where did the interest in agriculture come from? Well, as I said, I, I'm not from a, an agricultural family. I, well, I'm, I'm a bit over two generations from the farm. The, the uh, family had a farm, but they lost it in the Depression. Um, and the, I don't know that I was specifically looking for agriculture as a, as a career. I was looking for something that was going to be more practical and useful to people than what I was doing. Maybe I made a mistake because, of course, biofuels has become a, a really big research area in recent times. Um, but I haven't regretted it. And I think one of the things that I've really noticed about working in agriculture is that, you know, the people who, who work in agriculture really appreciate what you're trying to do for them. Um, they, are, they are very appreciative of the work that you're doing, the solutions that you're coming up with, even if they don't necessarily adopt them. They're appreciative of the fact that you're putting in that work on their behalf. And a lot of it goes on behind the scenes. I'm, I'm really excited to explore a few of these different areas and how your work then translates into practical implementation through various trials and, and other means. But this, this career journey and path, so you, you went through high school, decided to study... Um, what was it again? Well, I, I studied um, botany at the um, Australian National University. I was interested in plants. I, I actually was really interested in, in trees and, and you know forestry and managing trees. But by the time I got to the end of my uh, undergraduate degree, I, I just realised there were no jobs in that. So I did a PhD in, in plant biochemistry and then, um, went, as I said, went to the US and uh, worked on... Um, um, renewable energies in, in biofuels for a little over three years before coming back to Australia. You must nearly pinch yourself where the, the conversations are now in the public eye around nature, trees, renewables, etc. Oh, yes. I think that, uh, you know, I can always describe myself perhaps being a little bit ahead of the curve. <laughs> um, but uh, I, think, I think a lot of it was, is, and I, what I, I say to younger people, a lot of it's really about taking opportunities when they arise and and what you really think you might want to do when you leave school may not actually be the practical outcome and it may not be the best outcome for you either. And so I think you do need to, to look at, you know, a little bit dispassionately of what you're doing, you know, it's almost to, you know, do a sort of a helicopter um, view of where you are and what you're doing and say, well, am I on the right path? Am I doing something that's... And for me, a lot of that was around fulfilment. Was, was I doing something that... Um, I got a lot of you know joy from uh, and and that's you know as a scientist what I really like to do is to solve problems. And so tell me on that because thirty years with one organisation is an incredible tenure. So what is it that keeps you 
involved here at the University of Adelaide? Look, I think a lot of it is that the, the problems keep evolving and, uh, and, and keep moving and changing. And it's not like I have decided that I didn't want to leave Adelaide or whatever. Um, it was that, you know, there's still challenges here. You know, 30 years later, there are still challenges. They're different challenges to the ones that I started working on. But there's still a series of challenges. And so what I've actually done over my um, scientific career is I've, I've reinvented myself several times in terms of the sort of work I do and the sort of... And that's been around the problems that are, I've been feeling need to be addressed. So I went from working on, you know, how resistance happened in weeds to, you know, a, a long period of where, you know, something that I thought I'd never do, which was discovering new herbicides, um, through to, you know, really working on how to actually build a weed management system for growers that actually addresses their real weed management problems and then get them to adopt it. So could have done, you know, some of all of that. And in between I've been, you know, sort of dragged into a, a range of other areas. So we, I did a lot of, because I had the skill set, did a lot of work, early work on risk assessment for genetically modified crops. So what were the risks likely to be and how should farmers manage those risks? It's... Uh I want to go back to the first project you worked on in this space in terms of weed management. Do you remember what it was and anything that stuck out to you on it? Well, the first um, um, job I had was to try and understand why we ended up with paraquat resistance in weeds. And at that stage, you know, paraquat was a herbicide that had been used for a long time. We had a very, very small number of um, populations of weeds that had resistance and, you know, why was it happening in, in those weeds and not more generally was really what I was trying to um, work on and nut out. And what we did eventually, we eventually came to a really good understanding of what was happening in grass weeds in Australia and, and the recognition that if we kept our rates of paraquat high, we were going to re- reduce the likelihood that annual ryegrass would get resistance to paraquat. And it's really only now, some 25 years after all of that, that we're starting to really see that uptick in paraquat resistance in ryegrass. Huh. Incredible. Nothing happens overnight. Well, some things do happen overnight, but, um, you know, so, for example, with the, uh, the sulfonide urea herbicides, we actually did see resistance happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And I did a bit of work later on to try and understand why. And we got to understand why because in some of these weed species, before you've even used the herbicide, quite high frequencies of individuals that actually carry a resistance gene. And so you can select them out really, really quickly. Of course, by then, you know, that boat had sailed. We weren't ever going to fix that. But what it did tell us that when we got immune-resistant crops and we could use the immune herbicides, we were going to get immune-resistant weeds, which we did. Tell me, in terms of what goes on behind the scenes for you, how much time spent at a computer reading articles, writing documents versus in the lab understanding that? And how's that changed for you? Well, I think, you know, these days, because I, I, I run a, a research group, um, they generally speaking, they won't let me in the lab. Um, they don't want me down there um, interfering with <laughs> what's happening down there. Uh, I do a little bit of uh, a little bit of research off my own bat. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's generally fairly small and it's usually around some sort of, sometimes around some sort of side issues that, that come up. So I spend most of my time either... Uh, yeah, sitting behind a computer, reading, 
writing reports, writing grant applications, those sort of things, helping students write papers, uh, or uh, talking to farmers, talking to farm advisors, talking to industry about you know how do we how do we manage these problems that are out there. And on the student front, what's the, the next generation coming through? What how many do you have that you're working quite closely with? And um, yeah, what are the what are some of their characteristics and things that are coming through as passion areas for them? Uh, well, we've um, had quite a few um, students over recent years. We've had five uh, PhD students all at once, which was quite a number to manage. Yeah. Uh, COVID's kind of reduced the um, the intake because it's you know it's up, upset everybody's lives, mm-hmm. um, you know, travel and those sort of things. And so um, there's only a couple of um, PhD students that I've currently got. So. Uh, what I think what's changed is that what we're trying to uh, trying to do with uh, our students is we're trying to integrate the sorts of projects that they might be interested in into the rest of the work that we're we're doing, uh, and so they tend to be working on a, a smaller part of bigger projects. So you know, I've just had a student who's been um, looking at resistance to the new pre-emergent herbicides and how do we manage that. Um, I've got a, um, a co-supervising student at the moment who's looking at why do we have changes in um, dormancy in our key grass weeds in Australia and what's driving that. And I've got a student who's looking at um, uh, resistance to the phenoxy herbicides in weeds like wild radish and really trying to come to grips with what is it we've got and does that actually offer us any opportunities for managing the, these weeds in a different way. So f- fascinating and, and such diverse areas to study. Yeah, so one of the things that I've, I've kind of tried to do with the, the research that I've managed is to try and do everything from the molecular biology bit all the way to long-term field trials. And I think we've successfully done that. We've done the whole lot. Uh, but what that means is that I have to have specialists helping me in the various areas. So I've got somebody whose job is just to think about the molecular biology. You know, what do we need to do? What do we need to know? When do we need to know it? Those sort of things. And, you know, there's somebody who really looks after the, uh, uh, you know, all the pot work that we do. You know, what sort of projects should we be running in that area? And so on. So by having people with different skill sets, that actually allows us to cover that whole lot. And what it does, it means that, what we're doing in our field work can go back and influence the questions we're asking about molecular biology and the questions we ask about molecular biology can go on and influence how we approach the field work. So the, all the bits are talking to each other. Instead of just doing research because it's fun, I'm trying to do research because it's answering big questions that we need to know. On, on that piece, so you've talked about some of the structure in terms of your team and your members and how you do that, but... For those of us who are quite removed from the research world, can you talk to us how it goes as you're developing some of these different projects and how is it that you determine what topics and areas that you're going to focus on in terms of the, the priorities? Um, a lot of that will um, boil out of conversations I'm having with farmers and farm advisors. You know, what are the things that are worrying them on the ground? Um, you know, where are the areas that they're feeling a bit uncomfortable because they don't have enough knowledge? And sometimes, you know, we just got to admit they don't have the knowledge because it's not there. 
So, you know, for example, the pre-emergent herbicide work came out of um, the work we were doing around new pre-emergent herbicides and how to use them, and then suddenly we were getting a couple of reports coming in of them failing to control weeds. And we did a bit of testing, and suddenly, yes, we got resistance. And I went, we just have to get on top of this before it's everywhere, before all the farmers have it. So we went, right, this is going to be a research area we're going to focus on for that reason. Um, and in a similar way, though it took longer, is the, the weed dormancy work. Farmers were saying to us they were struggling to control certain weeds and farm advisors were saying Look, they think there was extra dormancy. So after looking and finding there was dormancy there, other work looking at how did you better utilise crop competition for managing ryegrass. And one of the things we did was to look at early sowing wheat versus sowing a month later. And so the original idea, you know, I got learnt when I started in weeds is you sowed your weedy paddocks last. And that worked in 1990. Mm-hmm. It's not true now. And what's happened is that even ryegrass has got additional dormancy. So what happened, it used to come up with two flushes at the beginning of the season and then you didn't see much. Now you've got one flush at the beginning of the season and one five or six weeks later. So delaying sowing by four weeks just means you still get that second flush. So we went, fine, we've got a management strategy for this so early. Use good pre-emergent herbicides so early. But we wanted to go, well, but why is it happening? And how far will this, you know, this process go and do... Now, how much do we have to worry about it? So we ended up getting a student to actually look at what was changing in these populations. And what she showed was that you're actually able to select dormancy, more dormant um, groups out of populations that are actually out in the field. You could do it really quickly and it changed the hormones that are involved in dormancy release. Um, so the genes that were triggering dormancy release were responding differently in those populations to ones that germinated early so now we understand the process the big question is is there anything we can do about that and so tell me on some of these the, these projects that you're doing and you're someone who's been recognized and i think we'll touch on some of the awards that, that you've got but you've got this unique ability nearly a superpower in in how you can take what's happening in academia and actually take it to farmers and get them to understand it in a in a way that they can practically then implement it so where have those skills come from and how have you developed them uh, look it's been it's been quite a long uh, I think it's been quite a long um, development piece I mean when I um, you know started in academia as a, you know a normal introverted scientist uh, I wasn't very good at this stuff uh, but one of the things that really struck me when I you know made that decision I really wanted to, to help people rather than just do fun science uh, that I understood that what the things I really needed to do was really understand what the issues were out there. And that led me, as I said, a lot of time, you know, listening to farmers and farm advisors. And I realised that I was doing work that was useful to them, but they didn't actually know about it. So that was the next part, is to work out how could I communicate that information to people? How could I take, this is what the data shows, this is how you can use that. And one of the things that happened around about the time that I was making that decision is that we first started to have the first indications that we get genetically modified 
herbicide-tolerant crops in Australia. We'd already had BT cotton at that stage. And I had all this skill set that I'd learned around um, resistance in weeds. And I said, look, we can go and look at this in, in crops. And so we did one of the early studies where we looked at gene flow from canola to wild radish, for example, and canola to canola. And here I had all this data which was showing that not a lot happens, actually. Yes, it happens, but it's at very low frequencies. But how do you actually communicate that to people? And that really put me on the spot. I suddenly had to, you know, make sure that I could get out there and talk about this. Yep. And so so I just, yeah, it was almost like one day having all those things coming together and me saying, look, you just got to go and do this. So I started thinking about ways that if I wasn't a scientist, how could I understand what this meant? How could I understand what a 1, 1, 1 in 1.8 million risk was in terms of, you know, real stuff? So they were the sort of things is that how did you, how did you convey that information to somebody at the other end could look at it and go, oh, yes, I can see what you're saying. So for that one, I'd talk about, oh, yes, we'll get, you know, cross-pollination from canola to wild radish, but at the rate that it happens, you're probably more likely just to select wild radish by using the herbicides. So don't worry about that. Worry about how you're using your herbicides. That's what's going to drive the system. And, of course, that was something that farmers were well able to um, cope and work with. Oh, yes, okay. Well, what do you mean by how often we might use your herbicide? And saying, well, if you only use the same herbicide 10 years in a row, that might put you into resistance. If you don't use it that way, that might push that out some more. And so suddenly they were being able to give an information they could say, yes, I can do that. So I can drop glyphosate out one year or I could add something else in or, or whatever it is they wanted to do. But what it did was that instead of being a number that had no practical import, it suddenly had now had something that they could relate to their farm. You've, um, you've just met or you, you just touched on s- some of those challenges in terms of the uh, – constant use of various chemicals and one of them which came in in the 80s in australia was glyphosate and that's one which has really i guess come into the public domain and public debate at all levels over the last few years but how have you seen uh, the use of glyphosate evolve over the years since its early implementation oh look there's been uh, been quite a lot of uh, changes in how we've used glyphosate so when glyphosate came in it was very expensive and so farmers used quite low rates uh, and usually followed that up with a cultivation. So the the, um, the farming system was you went out and sprayed your weeds with glyphosate and then you came back a couple of days later and cultivated the into the dirt and killed them that way. And so glyphosate was only, you know, kind of stopping um, transplants back in those days. Uh, there was a, a, a big focus on trying to move, use glyphosate to move to a no-till system, but it, it didn't really get a lot of traction for um, a number of years and I think a lot of that was about um, how to operate a, a good seeding system with the crops that we had and the invention of the of the narrow points was probably the the big thing that suddenly allowed no-till to take off uh, and uh, you know those days I was going oops we're going to put a lot of pressure on glyphosate we're going to put a lot of pressure on glyphosate and uh, even to the point of people were saying to me well you're just being a bit of a scaremonger about this. You know, you don't like no-till. And I said, no, no, I love no-till, but we're going to put a lot of pressure on glyphosate. And then we did get glyphosate resistance, but we actually got it in places we didn't expect it. 
and I think that was one of the real re- revelations for me around it is that you know we're expecting it to happen in this no-till um, farming system. Yes, it happened there, but some of the early stuff we got was in apple orchards and cherry orchards and vineyards and uh, you know eventually roadsides and places like that. And what that did was actually really change my view about how do we think about managing glyphosate resistance. And it's not the case that we would necessarily use the same tools that we might be for, say, some of our um, grass-selective herbicides, for example. Um, we could we could manage glyphosate resistance and still use some glyphosate. We didn't actually have to not use it. So the other thing that's happened, of course, is as we've moved to no-till and the glyphosate prices come down, rates have gone up. And rates have gone up to help farmers manage harder to control weeds that they wouldn't otherwise think of managing with glyphosate um, and to just give them more confidence that they've, they've got the weeds because they're no longer cultivating. So I think farmers have, have pushed the rates up around that sort of confidence aspect of, of, um, of farming. And then we got, um, you know, Roundup Ready glyphosate tolerant crops and at that point we really had to come up, well, how are we going to handle this? And I thought... You know, in Australia, we did a pretty good job at this. We provided a lot of information for end users about what their risks might be around having too much glyphosate um, use in the rotation. And so recommendations are like after they've grown Roundup Ready canola, they can use as much glyphosate as they like in the Roundup Ready canola, but the next year they should not use glyphosate at all to take some of the pressure off. And then thinking about what other management strategies they should add to that. So... One of the things we've also had has been a, a large uptake in things like um, harvest weed seed control that have actually helped um, assist our resistance management for glyphosate. So, you know, we've, we've come to where we're using glyphosate really very differently to when it came out originally. And that's what farmers do is they find new ways of using tools. And part of, I see part of my job is to make sure that I'm on top of that and understanding what the potential risks might be um, so that when they do come, we can step in and go, how do you manage that risk? Because I see part of what I need to be doing is that you know, farmers are going to farm, they're going to use a range of different weed control techniques and the weeds are always going to evolve. So we can wait till that evolution happens and try and fix it or we can try and get ahead of that and have the management strategy in place so that when farmers get there, they've got, they know what to do next. We can try and get them there beforehand, but 30 years of working on this tells me that very few farmers adopt resistance management strategies before they have resistance. It's just, it just, you know, it's just one of those things about human behaviour is you often don't take um, management strategy for things until you know it's staring you in the face so rather than spend a lot of time trying to get people to adopt things they don't want to adopt having the thing available to them when they get into the problem that they can then use and what that means is when they get to the next one they actually already have half the solution there anyway and so it makes it easier to adopt that next strategy i think What's really interesting on, on what you're saying there, and it comes back to a few different conversations I've had with people over the years, and it's in terms of when it comes to making decisions in any, any ecosystem, it's looking at it in terms of probiotics and antibiotics and breaking it down into some really simple kind of language. But it sounds like what you're saying there is when it comes to 
these weed resistance issues, we're actually leaning towards the antibiotic to fix that flare-up that we've got as opposed to thinking in advance of what what are the problems that we're starting to yeah identify or see. Are we starting to see things come out of kilter in our diet or ecosystem, but how do we then kind of jump on that in advance? So using this as an educational piece, what are some of the things that you're starting to identify now which might be future problems with, with glyphosate or, or other kind of herbicides as well that you see? Well, I think um, probably one of the big things that, that's on my horizon around glyphosate is the um, public attitude towards it. And I don't think we're in, under significant threat in terms of Australian farmers of not having access to glyphosate. Uh, there might be different decisions made at a local level in Australia, but I think from the farming point of view, we'll probably still have access to it. Uh, where we're probably likely to run into trouble is market access. And so I'm thinking about, well, what are our opportunities going forward if we lose uses of glyphosate? And in fact, I'm just starting some work where we're looking at demonstrating what some of the opportunities might be. So Harvest Weed Seed Control is one of those um, tactics. Uh, but are there things that we've got at the front end of the season that could replace that glyphosate knockdown that we use? Now, we've got paraquat, but paraquat is equally troublesome in some in some respects. Um, but are there other opportunities in that space? So, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is that, you know, can we come up with a, with a different um, place in there? I think in terms of can we fix weeds before weeds happen? I don't really think at the moment within our farming system that's actually a, a, a practical option for us, um, partly because what happens is that wherever you have a, a space, uh, something's going to turn up in there, and that's what weeds do. So we can use crop competition as one of our tools, and that's something that we've been pushing for a long time. It's actually something that has been quite troublesome to get adopted and that's because farmers have lots of other things they want to do with their farming system. So some of my big successes have been finding crop competition tactics that farmers actually want to use. So I talked about that that wheat work we did with that early sowing. Got adopted immediately because farmers wanted to sow early and they just wanted somebody to tell them, put your wheat crop in on the calendar. That's the best thing you can do. That's all they wanted. As soon as they were told that, right, we're doing it. Um, you know, we've had a big push on, on hybrid canolas for, in canola production for extra competition. We know it works. We know it works. And farmers who grow canola regularly are moving towards hybrids because it gives them better yield. And they also get better weed control. So it comes in as a secondary thing for something they're wanting to do. Um, some of the other work that we've done in that space around things like road spacing and so on, no, there are too many other things that are that are impacting what farmers are doing. But one of the things we have done, though, has been to demonstrate why you shouldn't go wider. And so farmers in certain areas, particularly in the higher rainfall zones, are sticking with relatively narrow row spacings for their crops because they know what the problem is of going wider from a weed point of view, even though all their cousins in the mallee are sowing wider. So just as one of those those things, understand your environment, and what you can use in your environment. So row spacing works really well in that environment. Uh, up in the Mallee, it's not such a big issue. 
for weed management so you can afford to be a bit wider and you need to be doing other things. So I look um, looking at the next 10 years uh, with no-till, with no-till farming, we're just going to continue to be using herbicides. Everything won't be herbicides, but we'll continue to use them. Um, the pre-emergent herbicides we're using for ryegrass control, they have... Well, our data suggests they've given us somewhere between a half and one tonne per hectare yield benefit just by using these new pre-emergent herbicides for ryegrass control, sowing early and um, using good pre-emergent herbicides and keeping that ryegrass out for four weeks in its really competitive stage. What happens after that doesn't actually impact yield very much. It just builds your wheat seed bank for next year. So, you know, I, I don't see us getting away from, from that because... That'll be a big yield penalty for us. Whatever we do, we'll have a big yield penalty. What we've got to do now is we've got to add to that. We've got to add things that are going to protect that. And this is where the harvest weed seed um, control and those other tactics are going to come in competition. Mm-hmm. That's all going to come into that. Yeah, well, fascinating space. You've got, you've got my mind racing as you're talking about all these different things and uh, maybe some of the different people we can bring in in terms of these conversations because things like where you're saying potentially the real challenge with glyphosate is market access. It, like it's, it's already happened through North America, hasn't it, with uh, the, the knockdown sprays that the big multinational food companies have already said, oh, based off consumer sentiment. No. Well, well, and we're starting to see that um, in, in you know, several markets around the place. So, you know, we've got, um, you know, um, grape growers in, in, in Australia who, you know, can't use glyphosate because the markets for their wine don't want it. Uh, and I think that, you know, you can, you can rant and rave about that. Uh, but there's nothing that we in Australia can do about European sentiment around pesticides. The only thing we can do is to respond to it. And I see that our way to respond to it is to actually respond in a, in a clever fashion um, so that we can maintain for as long as possible the, the farming system we've got that's working for us and still meet those market needs. And so that means that farmers can't go crop topping with glyphosate anymore and they've got to go out and buy a, um, a seed destruction mill. Well, that's what they've got to do. And I think that that's, that's how, we, how we get this, the system to continue to deliver for us. Because um, ultimately, at the end of the day, what we need to do is we need to have farmers that have got profitable farming systems for the, both the short medium and longer term because I, I don't know too many uh, grain farmers who are in the business for five to ten years. You know, they're, the, the farmers I talk to are, are all thinking about what they're going to hand on to the next generation. Tell me, um, you've, you've published in excess of 100 various peer-reviewed articles and book chapters in your time. Is there a certain piece of research that you've found has been most profound or had a really significant impact on you? Um, I think there's a few bits of, uh, of work I've done over the years that I'm, I'm really proud of, even if nobody else ever takes too much notice of them. Um, one of the ones was this work we did to go and find out why we got sulfonyl urea herbicide resistance so quickly. Um, because what that did was it, it, it identified the missing bit of the puzzle that told us what was happening. And what that told us was that Actually, how fast you get resistance is largely about the mode of action of the herbicide and how you use that herbicide. 
than anything else, really. They're the big drivers. And what that gave me was that when we started getting resistance to glyphosate, confidence that we could manage this, that glyphosate resistance was not going to overwhelm us in, in no time at all. We, we were going to be able to put the brakes on it and keep it relatively low for quite a long period if we got the management right. The other um, piece of another piece of work that's related to that that I'm quite proud of is the work we did around um, managing glyphosate resistance on farmers' fence lines. And again, you go, you know, how important can that be? But what it did in South Australia is when we fixed glyphosate resistance on fence lines, because most farmers use glyphosate in their fence line and in their paddocks. Once you fix it on the fence line, they found it pretty easy to manage in their paddocks because they weren't getting infested from the fence line all the time. Uh, and then I've got, you know, there's a, a number of pieces of work that I've been involved in around um, how resistance happens, the sort of molecular mechanisms of stuff. So there's this um, a process called gene amplification that happens with glyphosate resistance. So the way some weeds become resistant to glyphosate is that they create many, many extra copies of the gene. And uh, I was part of the first paper on that. And we're working with my colleagues in the US and they were, you know, working on Palmer amaranth that had 160 copies of the gene that glyphosate interacted with and that's how come it just wasn't affected by glyphosate. And just to think, you know, how did that happen? You know, it's not, it's not what we expected to happen. And so it's sometimes these really unexpected things um, that, can, uh, that can really give you a bit of a, bit of a buzz around, around scientific research. Well, and it also just kind of reinforces just how incredible nature is, isn't it? Well, it is, and I think the the thing to do is just to remember that you know there, there's a there's a lot of weeds out there, and there are a lot more weeds out there than there are of us. Uh, <laughs> so you know, doesn't matter what we come up with, the weeds will find a way around it. You mentioned on just that last part there, working with your colleagues in the US. How much of your work have you done internationally? Uh, I'll, I've done more so uh, in recent years, well, in the last 10 years or thereabouts, um, and uh, a lot of that um, boiled out of a, a period of um, six months I spent on sabbatical in the, in the US um, where I arrived just as they discovered glyphosate-resistant palmer amaranth in the US. And I'd been working on glyphosate-resistant ryegrass here in Australia, and uh, one of the people I was working with said to me, he said, oh, he said... Um, I think we should get on the phone to um, the researchers down in Georgia and get you down to Georgia and have a talk to them about it. And so we did that and I went down to Georgia and talked to all the researchers there with the idea that, you know, we were going to help work with them. And that's where that started from. Uh, but it became, you know, we're, we're working on that, working on a few other things. And then just as things came along, there was always this bit of a conversation as issues came up in the US, there was always a bit of conversation, you know, Chris, what do you think about this? So they were trying to, you know, just sort of tapping into ideas I might have about particular things and then we'd start working on it. And so we've worked on a, on a few things since. Your, um, your list of projects is, is huge. In terms of your work kind of really tailored and, and tightly aligned to GRDC, there's, a, there's been a few there as well, as well as some involvement with, various committees um, at a national level. What have been some of the projects that you've been working on through through the GRDC? Oh, well, I've worked in um, probably there's, there's 
I put them into a, into, a, into a few little buckets. So there's been the Understanding of Resistance project. So we were funded for a long time around trying to understand how and where resistance was happening, uh, particularly when glyphosate resistance came along, uh, but also things like the pre-emergent herbicide resistance. So there's a group of projects there. Then there's been some work where um, that was initiated originally out of South Australia uh, looking at surveying farmers' fields for to try and gain the extent of resistance out there. And in terms of um, extension activities, it's probably been one of our most successful pieces of work because everybody wants to know what's actually happening in their patch. So we've done that for a few years, well, more than 10 years now. So there's been a group of projects that have, that have looked at that. And there's been a group of projects that have looked at that integrated weed management space. And they've sort of been two segments of those. One of those has been around, um, well, the, the original idea that was how can we maintain no-till farming? So what integrated weed management do we need for no-till farming? And one of my colleagues and I looked at that and said, uh, looked at what was happening in no-till farming. They were using one herbicide uh, uh, for ryegrass management, which was trifluralin, and we went, they need another herbicide. That's what they need. Uh, and out of that work, Sakura came. Um, so there's been, since then, there's been a whole lot of work which has been looking at how do we use pre-emergent herbicides better. So we'd started, back when we started that work in 2005, that if you got 60 to 70% control out of your pre-emergent herbicide, that was okay. If you got 80%, that was brilliant. And now we're looking at can you get over 90% control season long out of pre-emergent herbicides. That's the, the aim we're setting ourselves. So how do you do that? Um, farmers tell me that the problem with that is that I never come up with anything that's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> but our work's shown that, in fact, that works. That, that still, you know, puts money back in, um, you know, in, in their pockets. And we had some work down at Francis in, uh, in South Australia in the high rainfall zone in recent years where we were spending up to $140 per hectare on ryegrass control and they were still the most profitable treatments in the whole trial. So it's about making sure you spend the money in the right places. And I think pre-emergent herbicides is, is one of those ones where you can actually afford to spend a few more dollars because it'll pay off in the long run. Because of that yield benefit I talked about in terms of getting rid of that early um, weed control. So there's been you know, quite a lot of work in that IWM space about how you put the pieces together. How do you do rotations? And it started off looking at, you know, in the kind of medium rainfall zone and ended up gravitating to the high rainfall zone because they've they got the biggest ryegrass problems. Tell me on this, because I'm, I'm just noticing as you're talking and I love it, the passion that's coming through. But you're seen as an incredibly influential and important person to the, to the grains industry. What is it that's still driving this passion for you after 30-plus years? I think it's the fact that there are, there are still problems that need solving. Um, that, you know, the, when I go out and I talk to a group of farmers and somebody raises something I haven't heard of before, you know, they've got, got an issue and I go, oh, I haven't heard about that before. Um, and I, I'll get talking to them about, you know, what it's doing and, and how, how it's causing them issues. And, and that gets me thinking, well, you know, there's a problem out there. Now, it might only be one farmer at the moment, but what I've understood over the years is that those problems grow and spread because 
lot of our farmers have got very similar management strategies. And so once you've got one farmer in a region, in a district, who's got a problem, it's fairly likely that there'll be others in the same area that will turn up with the same problem. They might just be a year or two behind. And it's often uh, one of the good things about resistance is that it's the best farmers who got the problem first because they were using the herbicides really well, really effectively. Uh, and I think that's going to be true of other things like this dormancy thing we've been talking about. It's been the best farmers, the ones who've been pushing the system to um, get the most out of it, who are running into these problems first. They're also the best at managing the problems when they come up. So sometimes you can sort of lean on them for what they're thinking about in terms of management ideas to how you might solve it. But it's those, it's those problems and issues that need resolution so we can continue to move forward with farming. So are you saying that there's a bit of a, a badge of honour? If you're the first one in the pub talking about a bit of resistance in one of your crops, that you might be a, a pretty handy farmer. Uh, look, one of the things I learned early on, actually, working on, on herbicide resistance, you know, just talking to farmers and advisors about the problems they were having, and it tweaked that it was often the good farmers who had the problem first. And so I, I go out, I'd better go out to ask a group of farmers talk about resistance. I'd go out there and you start off and you go, okay, you know, if anybody got resistance here, and they'd just all look at each other and sit on their hands. And, <laughs> uh, and I started going, well, you know, I've noticed it's the best farmers that get resistance first and a few hands that start going up. <laughs> uh, I think part of what they did is it, is it, is it took the, um, the stigma out of resistance, you know, recognising that it was really a problem of the farmers who were, who were making the most of their, of their farming land, who were getting these issues but it took the stigma out. And once the stigma was out, everybody was willing to talk about what they were facing, what the issues were, what they thought management might look like. Uh, and then you had a, you know, a lot of ideas that you could pick and choose from for what might actually work. It's, a, it's an interesting one. I'll, I'll be interested to see the feedback after this episode and, and see what people are looping back in with, I think, there, Chris. <laughs> I want to touch, and it might be the most uncomfortable question I'll ask you all day, but in terms of public recognition and and awards, you received the GRDC's Southern Region 2018 uh, Award around recognising and rewarding excellence, which is an incredible gong to have got. What's it like receiving these top awards for, for the work you do? Uh, look, I've, um, when people talk to me about what the highlight of my career has been, uh, one of the things I talk about was the Seed of Light Award I won. I think I was in the second year, perhaps, of the Seed of Light Awards for a, a winner. And I talk about that because that is recognition for work that I'm not necessarily supposed to do, if you like. So, you know, as a university of ac academic, my job is to do research and teaching, uh, I'm now getting some more university recognition for the you know that outreach and extension work that I do, uh, but I was doing a lot of that in the early days, you know, and the university didn't give me anything for that. It, you know, I had to find space in the rest of my time to to do that work. So here I was being recognised for something that was not really in my job description as such. So you know, those awards like that, where it's being the industry itself, recognising that I'm providing, what I've been doing is providing value to them. Um, and it, it, it reinforces my decision to change and come and work in weed management and agriculture 
because that's actually what I what I felt I was missing. I felt I wasn't doing anything to help anybody. And now to have that feedback from people to say, look, what you're doing is just so really valuable to us, so much so that we want to give you this plaque here and hang on your wall. Um, but it's about this, you know, more about the sentiment around that. It's the fact that they're, they're recognising that you know, what I'm doing still has value to them. And I go, fine, you know, people still think it's got value. I'm still willing to, to do it. As I say, I've kind of reinvented myself a few times in my career in terms of the things I do. And part of that's to, in, in a sense, to maintain doing things where I'm still getting that positive feedback from end users because that's actually what drives a lot of the passion. I mean, that discovering something nobody's ever seen before, that's fabulous. Uh, but also getting this positive feedback, that's the other thing that really drives what I do. We're really changing what's happening out there on the ground, isn't it? Which is incredible. Yeah, I mean, the purpose. yeah, and you can look back on a, you know, I can look back on my career and say, look, I was, you know, I, I was involved in this and that and this, and this is how it's made, you know, things so much better for people. And look back and say, look, I've had a positive impact on my career. And I, you know, they often talk, talk about there are sort of two groups of people: the people who um, work to live and the people who live to work. Well, I'm definitely in the you know the category of people who live to work, uh, and so you know that's part of where you know I find that the value in what I'm doing is because it's got value to other people, and I think you know the day I start doing stuff that uh, everybody looks at and says, "What are you doing that for?" I'll be looking for a different career, and I think probably what would be so rewarding too for you would be you get away for a weekend and. Not that you want to take your work with you, but you get out to some of these southern growing regions and you look in uh, over the last few years when things are going well and you look at just how good the crops are looking and how good the countryside's looking and knowing that a, a lot of the work you've been doing for the last 30 years has had a really profound impact on helping those people out in the community. It's uh, it's incredible. Yeah, there's a lot about that. And I think that, you know, and particularly in the bad years, when I, I you know, I, I remember the, the 1980s drought uh, and how bad that was. Um, even though I was living in the city at that time. But, you know, you go out and they have drought years and, and, and farmers do okay. And farmers are only doing okay because they've adopted all these strategies that make their farming system better. Yeah. You know, they are using no-till, they're sowing early, they're making the most of moisture. They can only do that if they've got the weeds managed. And so it all comes into, if you get it right, even in a bad year, you can make money. So we're doing the fast five questions. We're going to ask everyone who comes on as part of this series the same five questions. So tell me, question one, what's your favourite grain-based dish? Oh, I love lentils. <laughs> That's easy. With those lentils, the, the dish you're making, who would be three people you'd invite around for dinner? Look, I'd really, I'd really like to invite around some great conversationalists dinner um so it's uh they're, they're always the sort of people i'm thinking of because i'm actually a pretty poor conversationalist myself <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a, I want people are going to tell me really interesting stuff <laughs> <laughs> and so who might be those oh uh, well i mean you know sort of um you know some of the people I, I think about that i've met in my agricultural career that i'd love to it'd be you know alan mayfield i think it'd be a you know a key person uh, bill long's another another agronomist is who's always says interesting stuff <laughs> even if i don't agree with it all <laughs> oh that's good he's coming around for lentils 
M1 då? Ja, tell me någon else name. Let's go. Let's move on. <laughs> Yo, what was your first job? Uh, my first job was working for, well, other than, you know, school newspaper round type jobs. Yeah. My first real job was working for the Australian government where I worked for a thing called um, the Inventory of Chemical Substances, where yeah. what the government was trying to do was to find out every chemical that was imported into or manufactured in Australia. Wow. Hell of a list. It was a big list. <laughs> you need to know a fair bit of chemistry. <laughs> What's something that's on your bucket list? Ah, oh, look, I've got a number of things on my bucket list. I'll be ticking a few of them off, but they're still, you know, still got to go to Macu Piku. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How good would that be? What's a question that you've got for a future guest that you'd like me to ask them? I think I'd really like you to ask all your guests about what is it about agriculture that still drives their interest in it? Love that question. That's a good one. And... I've got a question here. What are you doing in your organisation to help drive young people to agriculture? Well, one of the things that I do uh, is that I've volunteered myself um, in the early days to teach first-year agriculture students. Um, I recognise that our first-year students, they come along here and they get a bit of a science degree with one day a week of agriculture. And... What typically happens in a lot of um, programs is that the top uh, researchers and academics um, skip away from teaching first year because it's harder and less rewarding and want to teach third year. And I looked at it and I said, actually, my skills are best placed in teaching first year where I can talk to these students about agriculture and what's so great about you know, the agriculture we've got in Australia and why they want a career in it. I love that. That's that's good. So is that something you're still doing now? That's something I'm still doing now. Love it. Uh, the opportunity, when the opportunities come to increase my um, time teaching first year, I do that at the expense of some of my other teaching. Wow. There you go. That's passion. Well, Chris, thank you so much for sitting down and having a chat with us for this GRDC podcast. It's been a fascinating hour or so and I'm feeling quite invigorated, so thank you. <laughs> well, it's been, a, it's been an interesting career I've had, I think. Absolutely. It's taken you some places and we can't wait to see what else you've got to tick off. Well, I'm hoping I'm hoping that I you know, there'll still be a couple more problems for me to solve before I finish. Beautiful. Good on you, Chris. Thanks for that. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.